0: Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. Please stand with me if you would. We're going to read verses 11 through 21. It's going to seem like we're backing up a little bit tonight, but we're going to look at this passage in its entirety. We've been looking at it close up in bits and pieces Uh, I would like for us to kind of draw back a little bit and look at it as a whole, and then the Lord willing, we will come back to it and make some applications in sermons ahead. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, let us hear God's holy word, but When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. But If I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law then Christ is dead in vain. Amen. Amen. Holy Father, we ask after this time of prayer that Thou wouldst hear us. Many pleaded with Thee tonight for Thy blessing, for Thy Spirit, for light in Thy Word. O help this vessel of dust to preach thy word this evening. Thy word is infallible. Thy preacher is not. Oh God, how I pray with all of my heart that as our brothers have so graciously prayed this evening, may we not grieve, may we not quench That holy person who comes to fill our hearts, who gives us life from the world to come, who animates us, who drives us to that which is pure and good. Forgive us, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our grievings and quenchings of thy spirit. And, O Christ, be exalted in our midst this evening bless Thy people, feed Thy sheep. I can't. I pray, O God, that we would know the outpouring of Thy Spirit and the blessings of Thy presence. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. As we have seen, Paul rebuked Peter for not walking according to the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel that Paul is defending is knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, we have taken the time to define justification, and we have learned that it is God's declaration. It is God declaring us righteous by faith in Christ, not making us righteous. It is declaring us. It is the work of a judge. As we said previously, a judge does not make someone in the right. A judge does not make someone in the wrong. He declares one to be in the right, or he declares one to be in the wrong. So justification is God's declaring sinners righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And we defined the phrase, the works of the law, as all things required by the law of Moses. All things required by the law of Moses. Finally, we considered that the of of Jesus Christ was not speaking of his faithfulness. It was not speaking of his faith, but it is faith of which Jesus is the object. Faith of which Jesus Christ is the object, and that is most plainly shown to us, even though there are other uh, points to that. It's most plainly Uh, shown to us in the fact that the parallel uh, phrase is we have believed in Jesus Christ. This is what he is affirming. There is a contrast. There is a versus, V-E-R-S-U-S. There is a versus, faith and works in this passage. So with those things in mind, we are now going to back up and take something of a bird's-eye view to try to get this long and difficult passage a little more clearly fixed in our hearts. <clears throat> and as I said, we will uh, in future message uh, make applications. There are certain uh, verses we would like to return to and spend a little more time unfolding them, but we want to see them all now in the the, the way Paul wrote them out and uh, try to understand what is arguably uh, a a quite difficult passage in some places. So, the title of our message is Christ is Not Dead in Vain. This is his point. And Peter has violated that thought. So, Christ is not dead in vain. May our gracious Heavenly Father fall upon us by the Holy Spirit. May He give us light in the sacred text and life in our hearts and love for Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. That being said, our first thought is this. Paul's trip to Jerusalem... Resulted in agreement. Peter's trip to Antioch resulted in his rebuke. <clears throat> We're going to look at verses 11 through 13 first. Now, <clears throat> as an introduction to that, in verses 1 through 10 of this chapter, Paul described a journey to Jerusalem in which he met with the apostles James, Peter, and And John. He refers to them as the pillars of that church. Paul took Barnabas and Titus with him and after a private meeting with them, the Jerusalem apostles offered Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. The pillars, so to speak, recognized Paul's gospel to the Gentiles the uncircumcision, as the same as Peter preached to the Jews, the circumcision. This is crucial. This is essential for our understanding this passage properly. That trip was wonderfully successful, if we may put it that way. Furthermore, James, Peter, and John did not require Titus the Gentile to be circumcised, recognizing that they all agreed to the truth of the gospel. There was harmony, there was unity in Christ, there was full agreement on the gospel being preached, and that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews, they did not have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be God's people to be Christians. Now, Paul then gives us an extraordinary contrast between his visit to Jerusalem, which included agreement in the truth of the gospel, and Peter's visit at Antioch, which included a violation of the truth of the gospel. So our first thought under this major heading is that Paul publicly confronted Peter. We have seen this, verses 11 and 12, with the word, but. Paul sets a sharp contrast between his Jerusalem visit and Peter's Antioch visit. But when Peter was come to Antioch, that's not simply Uh, a little geographical note. That's not just a little historical filler. He's saying, I've just told you about this glorious trip to Jerusalem where we all agreed, but, but when Peter came to Antioch, the picture turns negative. Instead of the blessed agreement among the Jerusalem apostles, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, Paul boldly confronted Peter to the face because he was to be blamed. Now let's remember, Paul is telling the Galatians that his ministry and his message came directly from God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. He met with the risen Christ, and was commissioned to the work that Christ himself gave him. And now, Peter, also a hand-picked disciple, a hand-picked apostle, is to be blamed. Why is, he, why is Paul telling the Galatians that? We'll unfold that more as we go. For before the certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, the men from James, he withdrew and separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing them which were of the circumcision. The Jewish party from James apparently stirred up fear in Peter's heart. We don't know why. We don't know how. Uh, uh, Paul isn't interested in telling us that. But the fact is, that's what happened. That's the underlying issue. And the Galatians are to take note of this. Peter the Apostle feared those of the circumcision. It was false teachers who were coming in the name of the circumcision that were perverting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Galatian churches. So much so, was Peter struck with fear that he separated from his Gentile brethren? And that act sent a signal to Jews and Gentiles alike. It was a very loud message. If Gentile believers wanted to fellowship with Jewish believers, they would have to be circumcised and practice. The Mosaic Law. That's what that one act did. That's what it said. That's what he, uh, uh, Paul is going to call force compelling the Gentiles. <clears throat> and in this particular case, the, the practice of the law would have been the food laws. That's what the whole issue sprang from. Now that clearly Don't miss this. That clearly contradicted Paul's Jerusalem visit. It was the direct opposite of what they had all agreed on in the Jerusalem visit. So Paul confronted Peter face to face. Why? Because it was a denial of gospel truth. Secondly, Peter's bad example infected all the Jews at Antioch with that gospel error. It wasn't just, oh, we disagree about something like the time of the Lord's return. It was the most fundamental error that could be made against the gospel at that time. The text says, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. Children dissembled here means acted the hypocrite. The other Jews absorbed the message that Peter's act plainly set before them, and they followed him. And that made them hypocrites because Peter was being a hypocrite. It says in so much the other Jews, the other Jews dissembled likewise with Peter in so much that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. What a blow to Paul's evangelistic ministry. I mean, the man that had labored with him so intensely for so long. If I can say it this way, I mean, his gospel sidekick got pulled into the vortex of the hypocrisy. Why? Because an apostle did it. That's why. An apostle did it. That's why the errors of pastors are so deadly. It's why we have to be cautious, careful. We walk on eggs all the time. I would like to have another gate, but it's the egg walk most of the time. What we say, what we do, how we act, it's being absorbed. If he can do it, I can do it. If he's doing it, I probably should do it. Unfortunately, we don't have much of that problem here. But the fact of the matter is, we need to understand the powerful influence that leaders in a congregation must exert and do have by the authority of God. But that makes their errors more significant. That is why uh, the, the scriptures tell us, be not many masters, for theirs is the greater condemnation. Peter's error made such a profound impression on the other Jewish believers present that even Barnabas, that right-hand man who had been so faithful to Paul in his gospel mission to the Gentiles, was carried away and played the hypocrite. They all stood back from the, the Gentiles. As we've seen in Acts 10, Peter learned from God himself in a vision that he could eat Gentile food. God confirmed this in Peter's evangelistic mission to the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. As the Gentiles in Cornelius' house believed Peter's preaching of Christ, God poured out the Holy Spirit on them as he had on the Jews on the day of Pentecost. The Jews that were there, if you will remember, were stunned. How could God pour out that Holy Spirit on these unclean Gentiles? They haven't even been circumcised yet. So Peter had no excuse for his blatant hypocrisy and his severe gospel error he was not like the false teachers in that he was purposefully trying to undo the preaching and teaching of the apostle Paul but his stumbling as he did triggered by his fear of the big guys from Jerusalem Set loose a wave of hypocrisy in the body of the Lord Jesus. There in Antioch. Therefore, let me come to our second major heading. Paul corrected Peter and declared the truth of the gospel. Verses 14 through 21. Now our first thought here is Paul was moved To act when he realized Peter's error. Paul rightly perceived that Peter's error. Was violating the gospel truth. That they had previously agreed on. In Jerusalem. Once again. That's why that word but. Is so important. But when Peter came to Antioch. It turned around. So Paul told the Galatians. When I saw, I grasped, I understood what was happening. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, public rebuke because this was a public sin. You will notice, he didn't take him off to the side. He didn't take him uh, into an office off of the... The site of the meeting room in Antioch. We don't even know what the building was like. But there was not the privacy of Matthew 18. People confuse 1, John, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 all the time. And I don't know why. Other than perhaps just not carefully reading and understanding the different uh, uh, When When we say church discipline, we don't necessarily mean... And there have only been a few times when we've had to do this. But we don't necessarily mean beginning a process of Matthew 18. That is something that begins in private because it's something that happened between people in the church. And it's to stay private. The elders don't need to know about it unless they can't resolve it. And it is their responsibility before the head of the church to fix it. Everybody here needs to get that. Don't bring the elders in as soon as you know someone crosses your plans, or irritates you, or annoys you, or does something you think is sinful. Don't come and ask the elders, "Oh, what do you think I should do about that?" <laughs> because we're going to look at you and say, "Obey Jesus. Go to them in private, and don't talk to us. Go get that straightened out." <clears throat> And if, that, if you're going privately, doesn't straighten it out, get a couple of witnesses and go back and keep it that much private. You still have expanded a little, but you're keeping it private. Everybody in the church doesn't need to know. Don't be a miserable hypocrite and go to ten people and say, what do you think I ought to do about this? There's one thing to do. Go. If you won't go, be quiet. It's that simple. You be a peacemaker or you obey Christ and go get it worked out. It is not an option to go to the prayer meeting with somebody uh, uh, when the ladies are meeting to pray or the men are meeting to pray and we bring up, oh, you know, we need to pray about somebody. What do you think I should do about this? A brother somebody did this to me. I mean, it's like, no, absolutely not. But when you get to 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, everybody knows what's going on with this thing. He says, put the guy out now. There wasn't any, oh, let's take him aside and talk. There's nothing to talk about. It's open, flagrant sin. Put him out. That's the principle Paul is working with right here. He chooses to publicly rebuke. That is One of the methods of church discipline. Public rebuke. It was a public sin. And therefore, there wasn't any need to do anything privately. Now, with that in mind, this is how he comes to Peter. You're to be blamed. And he begins to tell them. I tell him. Notice, it says that when I saw them, I said to him. As we said in a previous message. So, at this point, as I have mentioned before, a good case can be made that everything said between verses 14 and 21 are Paul's rebuke and correction of Peter. And it's all, listen carefully, it's all for the sake of the Galatians. This is why Peter's do, uh, Paul is doing this. <clears throat> uh, not all commentators throughout the history of the church have seen it that way. They have not seen verses 14 through 21 as a whole. Uh, and uh, as you look through the history of the interpretation of this passage, you'll see that at various stages along the way, they'll say, well, after this verse is when he finishes with Peter. After this verse is when he finishes with Peter. I would agree with those who say that from verse 14 to the end of what we call the chapter is Paul's correction. It's his rebuke and his correction of Peter, and it is for the sake of instructing the Galatians, both in the gospel... And in Paul's apostleship, he's taking another apostle to task. Now, Paul's correction establishes two vital points. Actually, more than this, but I will set before you two. And it is this, that as we've said from the beginning of the letter, His apostleship was equal to that of Peter's. Paul had to wrestle with his apostleship throughout his ministry. He was, in God's providence, the latecomer. He came in later. He was not among the original twelve that were chosen to be the disciples and apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was brought in later. And his enemies made all the hay out of that that they possibly could oh he's not really an apostle this guy's a latecomer. he's uh he's not even an he's not really an apostle he's subject to the guys in jerusalem he's proving no he's not he would bow to them in their authority but not in their errors Number two, the content of his phrase, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. He's said it twice now, and we have discussed that as well in previous messages. Now, all this was a correction for the Galatians who were coming under the spell of false teachers who were propagating the same Judaizing errors, And upon those false teachers, Paul had called down God's curse. God's curse. Don't preach any other gospel. Because it's not a gospel. Now, with that in mind, with that strong contrast in mind, Paul began his correction with Peter's knowledge of the gospel. We can learn a lot from Paul here in dealing with error. But he very wisely begins to address Peter on something that Peter knows. He reasoned with his fellow apostle this way, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? It's quite obvious. Peter had become very complacent, very happy to live and eat with the Gentiles, which he formerly considered, because of the law, to be unclean. Now they were his brothers and his sisters, and he was comfortable. Eating their food. So Paul says, all right. You've been down here visiting us. You're a Jew. Now, if you've been living like a Gentile, why is it that all of a sudden you are forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is his argument. Now, that may have struck Peter in an odd way. I I don't know. Again, the passage, the letter doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us if Peter answered, if he just stood there and looked like he'd been thunderstruck. We we don't know. It'd be nice to know. Paul, you misunderstood. I was just going over to ask for the ketchup. Well, You know, there's nothing like that here. He simply, Paul, and Paul was absolutely brilliant. And he he just comes right in uh, to Peter's heart and says, you know what you did, forced the Gentiles. Love to have known how that went down with Peter. I'm sure in his fear of the men from James, he did not even think about the implications of what he was doing. And we've all done that at some point or another. Now that question was aimed directly at Peter's hypocrisy. Do we see that? I mean, this was, if we were to say, and maybe if it was a cannon, a bazooka, a rocket launcher, it was intended to be a hypocrisy demolisher. You know, I I, I wonder if if when Paul confronted him and got in front of him face to face, uh, if he felt like you know the laser target was just hitting him right here, and he knew something was about to come. God Himself had taught Peter that he could eat. With the Gentiles. But fearing the men. From Jerusalem. He separated from table fellowship. With the Gentiles. And by doing so. With the weight. And authority of. An apostle. He was forcing. He was compelling. He was pressing the Gentiles. To adopt Jewish law. You can't be with us. Until you get circumcised. And keep these laws. <clears throat> Paul would have absolutely nothing to do with that. He then appealed to Peter's and his own Jewish heritage. He, he fired at his hypocrisy. And then he takes it a little step further. We who are Jews by nature. You Peter. I am a Jew by nature. You know that. Barnabas. Many of the men here. All of us who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. We've talked about what that meant. Now, we have discussed this passage uh, on two previous occasions. So that we'll, we'll just pass on to the most important, if not the most important verse in the letter. He says, you and I were Jews by nature. We're not sinners of the Gentile, Right. Is that the case? So Paul aimed. And fired again directly into Peter's conscience. We who are Jews by nature is knowing. Knowing. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. But by the faith of Jesus Christ. That is the faith. That has Jesus Christ as the object. Even we have believed in Christ. We who We that are born Jews. The various times in my marriage. My wife has been very patient with me. There are times when she would say certain things to me. And it's like we've been over this land before. And I would say, you don't have to tell me that. Now, I thought I was saving us some time. She heard that as a very rude response. Understandably so, now that I've learned a little better. But I would say, you don't have to tell me that. Because it's like, wait, I know this. Well, this is the kind of thing here that Paul is doing to Peter. In the sense that he's telling him what Peter knows. Peter's not saying, wait, hold it, I need to take some notes here. This is all new stuff. He says, no, you and I are Jews, and we know that the truth of the gospel is that men are not justified, they are not declared righteous by any law, uh, obedience to any law of Moses. He caps that off by quoting from Psalm 143, 2. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It reads more like this in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Now, verse 16 is the truth of the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel that Peter has violated and that Paul is defending with all his reasoning skills. Paul is implying something like this. This is a A a stretched paraphrase, but I hope it helps. Peter, we Jews that have believed know from the gospel itself that our only hope is that the judge of heaven and earth will declare us righteous. And he will only declare us righteous By trusting Jesus Christ alone. We'll talk about the word alone in a future message. We don't ever hear justification by faith alone in the scriptures. We say it because of the battle between Rome and Martin Luther. But there's a reason why we may use the word alone. We'll talk about that. In a message to come. So Peter you know that the only hope. Of, of being declared righteous by God. Is not in obeying a single law of Moses. But believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The crucified the resurrected Savior. God declares us righteous by faith alone. In the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You know that and I know that. Because we preach the same gospel. Remember Jerusalem. To keep these things in context. Why is Paul saying anything in this letter? It's all connected. We have to learn how to read in context. And understand why if he's saying something up here. It's probably connected. to What's a little bit down the page. Connect them. <clears throat> so. He repeats it three times. I I don't know if that has anything to do with with Peter's having denied the Lord three times. But we certainly see the Lord dealing with Peter uh, in multiples of three. Though Paul tells his friend three times, justification by faith alone. Justification not by any work of the Mosaic law. So then, if we Jews, Peter, if we Jews believe on Christ alone to be justified, why are you forcing the Gentiles to put themselves under the Mosaic law? This is what he's saying. This is what he means with these words. Your act is anti-gospel. Paul then asked Peter a provocative and pointed question. Verses 17 and 18. Before we go further, by the way, I must say to you that these two verses, especially verse 17, are very difficult to interpret. And the interpretations are widely different. I... I, Set it in my heart that I was not going to set before you the various ways it's viewed. I do that sometimes. <clears throat> that can be confusing with especially difficult passages. So let me, let me just emphasize what good and sound exegetes say. Tom Schreiner says, quote, The meaning of verse 17 is intensely debated close quote Douglas Moo says the meaning of this verse and the next one that's 17 and 18 which are closely related and their contribution to the argument of this paragraph are unclear in other words what do these two verses have to do with the argument that's taking place right here Mu goes on to say, of two uh, of the most uh, well-known interpretations, he says, neither interpretation is without its problems, and hence the division of opinion among scholars. Now, when the finest exegetes on the planet are saying that type of thing, uh, I would be a greater fool than I already am to imagine that I would either have the last word on such a passage or that I even understand it as I hope to. But I will give you what I believe is a reasonable understanding of it and I urge you to continue your own studies and meditations of it as I will over the years to come. I know and all exegetes ultimately agree on Paul's purpose, but we're not entirely sure how those two verses connect and what they mean in the connection of their context. That being said, Paul says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners is therefore christ the minister of sin well what does that mean paul seems i want mean, everybody make sure you hear that word paul seems to be saying this or at least something close to this peter you and i are jews Since you and I have come to believe that faith in Christ is the only way of justification, we have rejected the works of the law. We cannot look to the law to be justified, but that's what you have done. You are found a sinner today. You have made yourself a a sinner by turning back from the gospel that you share with the Gentiles. You've turned your back on it. You have, by your actions, said that they must be circumcised and eat according to Moses' food laws. But that is not what went down in Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> with your understanding of the Gospel, is it Christ's fault with what you've done today? Is Christ the minister of sin? Is he the one that is behind the fact that you've done what you've done? No. Paul says, God forbid. In other words, Peter is abusing what the gospel is about. He's doing something sinful. And we're going to find out exactly how sinful in what Paul says next. He's dealing with a man who is of the greatest stature among the Lord's people who has done something that defiles and denies the gospel. Is Christ the minister of that? Is Christ the one provoking that? Since he has called you to believe in him alone for your justification. Is he the one responsible for your sin today? Now if that's a reasonable interpretation. Then we may consider verse 18 this way. For if I build again the things which I destroyed. Very important. You notice a change? He's been saying we, we Jews, we. Now he says I. Those are always significant. Why would he change to this? I would suggest that it's actually an act of kindness as he continues his rebuke and correct of Peter. He now gives himself as an example. He uses himself, let me say it this way, not that he has done this, But he simply puts himself in the place of someone who could. Listen to what he says carefully. He says, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, I understand the implications of that in this context to mean something like this. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, as you just did, Peter, I make myself a transgressor. As you just have. He's correcting his brother graciously. Even though it's a stout reproof. And no doubt. A very painful correction in the presence of all those that are gathered. In other words Peter is saying something like. uh, Paul is saying something like this. Quote Peter I'm a Jew. That has abandoned the Mosaic covenant and the works of the law as a means of justification. If I go back on those things, I make myself a transgressor. You and I have believed that it's faith in Christ alone. But now, your action is saying the opposite of that. You're going right into the error. You are rebuilding what you walked away from. Paul no longer looked to his own righteousness. He said, I'm not going to take the law and say, oh, I'm righteous because I've kept it. I don't want that righteousness. Philippians 3. I want that which is in Jesus Christ alone. If I go back to the law, I'm rebuilding something that God is finished with. And I make myself a sinner. That's what you've done today. By separating from these men. And probably women as well. I don't know. If I go back on those things. I make myself a transgressor. That's what you've done. He puts it in a gentler term. Paul then used himself as an example for Peter's correction, verses 19 through 21. Paul went on, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. That's another difficult thing. It's very simple words. There's not one word there you have to look up. Everyone knows each of those words. But what does he mean by that? If you will take and meditate on the scriptures, you will often find that passages you've heard maybe even memorized if you think about them hard enough you'll be asking yourself what does he mean by that really what does he mean by that and how how am i supposed to understand that if i don't understand it i know i can't apply it very well i through the law am dead to the law that i might live unto god what's the context paul and peter have been preaching the same gospel but now peter has gone back to the law So so Paul is now going to go on with his correction. I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. And what does he mean by that? He explains in the next verse, I am crucified with Christ. Here is the blessed doctrine of union with Christ who is our substitute. We have both substitution and union here gloriously. This is gospel truth you don't find this in the law he says I'm crucified with Christ his crucifixion was my crucifixion his crucifixion is every believer's crucifixion Jesus hung on Calvary's cross in our place paying the debt of our law breaking as he endured his father's dreadful dreadful wrath So as the law condemned Christ, he finished its wrath against us. Therefore, through the law's wrath and satisfaction in Christ, all God's children are dead to the law. Do you get that? The law cannot damn you anymore because it damned the Lord Jesus. So through the law, as it wore out our Savior, I'm dead to the law. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul can say these kinds of things. The law was finished in its wrath in Christ. And that makes you and me dead to it. That doesn't mean it doesn't speak to us about the righteousness of God. But it no longer stands and damns me because Christ took all the punishment for its condemnation. I threw the law, am dead to the law. The old covenant system is finished. The old covenant has passed away. Paul knew this and so did Peter. My brethren, Paul is telling Peter, you have resurrected the law in separating from your Gentile brethren. And am I talking past anybody? Are are you getting what's being said here? It's difficult, but if you get down here and wrestle with it, whether you come to all the conclusions I'm setting before you or not, I can tell you that the high points are here. They're right here. Peter, you have resurrected the dead. You are rebuilding something God has finished. Getting up and leaving that table and going to sit with the Jews and ignoring your Gentile brethren is a denial of the gospel truth that you know. It's not the truth of the gospel. You're forcing them back to Moses. When by faith in Christ without the works of the law, you're dead to the law. You should realize and you know that you're dead to what you just did. Then comes that glorious declaration. Where he says, nevertheless I live. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's closing words here are thrilling. He's telling Peter, in, in, in so many words, he's telling Peter what he should have done. What's true about him. He says, it's true of me. And we both know the same gospel. He says, it's not I. He's not saying that his inner man, Paul, doesn't live anymore. What he's saying is that I lived according to the old man. I am now alive in Christ. And it's not just that I'm alive, it's the fact that he that is life dwells within me. I am alive spiritually I was dead spiritually because of the law. I am now alive spiritually because Christ dwells in me. Now, do you think of yourself that way? We get to our applications. We'll we'll take a little time with that. Do you do you think at any time during the day that you are in eternal union with the living Christ and that he dwell, he dwells in you, not near you? In you by the power of his Holy Spirit. That should make you happy. That should fill you with joy. And it could be. That sometimes we're not so happy. Because we don't think about that. He dwells. In. Me. Peter that never came by the law. That came by faith. Faith. He's going to rebuke the Galatians in the next chapter on a similar matter when he said, that Holy Spirit, the Spirit that filled you, how did you get that? How did you get that? It wasn't by the works of the law, so now are you going to finish the course by the law? No, it begins in faith. It continues in faith. It ends in faith in Jesus Christ. Always and only. We are right with God. Because Christ has done everything infinitely necessary to save me. And to keep me from my sins. Peter, you caved in. You caved in. And that caving in wasn't just, oh, a personal boo-boo. You attacked the gospel when you left your brothers at the table. Seemed like a little thing, didn't it? Oh, he's up and eating with somebody else. It's a huge thing. It was utterly hypocritical for a man personally taught by God that he could eat with the Gentiles and had been doing so to cave in and run back to a law principle. Paul, with that sharp mind and the power of the Holy Spirit, got a hold of that and personally said no. No. That's not going to wash here. I've been up to your place. You're down here at my place. we are not going to do that here at our place. I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself one. The person who loves me more than anybody dwells in me. The whole world can forsake me. There'll be days when you feel like that's what's happening. But as long as you know this, you can have joy unspeakable and full of glory. It is Christ who lives in me, and that came by believing the gospel. So then, his closing word in his rebuke, the very last verse here, is very powerful. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Why why is he saying that? Because Peter has. Peter, I want you to get this. I'm, I'm, I'm transferring this over to me and I'm putting it to you this particular way. And I want you to understand the results, the consequences of your choice. I do not frustrate the grace of Christ. In other words, that, fr- that word frustration there, we don't, uh, we don't use it this particular way generally. But he's, what he's saying is, you have set aside the grace of God. Set aside the grace of God. Peter, your sin is great because in your simple act of separation you have built again the law and we'll see again in the future that law, the the law that separated Jew and Gentile was knocked down by Christ. That wall's gone and Peter was rebuilding it by a simple table switch. And he says, you know what the gospel is, but you have built that wall between Jew and Gentile and you are frustrating, you are setting aside, you are making void the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then he says, if righteousness come by the law, which you've just shown, then Christ is dead in vain. That's a powerful closing. He said. "Eh. Do you know how important. The error you made is. You're setting aside God's grace. And Christ is dead. In vain. If righteousness comes by the law. Christ is dead in vain. So. But Paul wanted those in Antioch, those in Galatia, and those in every place where God's people congregate, what he wanted them to know is that Christ is not dead in vain. See, he wants this, he not only wanted that to sink into Peter, he's he's done all of this that we've looked at now. He's done all of this to say, now, Galatians. This is what you're doing. You are setting aside the grace of God. For these men that have come in and said, Oh, you want to be with us? Got to be circumcised. Want to be with us? Got to go back to these food laws. You want to be with us? We're going to get on back down to Moses. And Paul said, No. I'm not going to rebuild what I've destroyed. And Peter, you shouldn't have. You've laid the first brick. (laughs) Knock it over. Don't go back. Brethren, Christ did not die in vain. He died to save His people from their sins. And He also died to save them from the condemnation of the law. And Peter was heading right back to it. While it might seem stiff, it might seem a little uh, painful. It might even seem humiliating to think of Paul reading the riot act to Peter this particular way. It was an act of love. Because when you deny the truth of the gospel, you don't just damage people spiritually. You help to murder people for eternity. That's not a light thing. Paul had labored in Antioch and Peter from Jerusalem had just come and stuck a wrench in the gospel machine. And Paul took care of it in a gracious but firm way. So, we will return to this passage and make some applications. But Peter fell victim of his fear of men. And in doing so, he denied the glorious gospel. He set aside God's grace and declared that Christ was dead in vain. Oh, how easily we can mar the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we see it and believe it in all its purity and live with Christ for eternity. Amen. Oh, Father. Peter was a great instrument in thy hands, and yet in his flesh he could fall. Who here does not have Peter's flesh? Lord, all of us can, may fall in our understanding and in our application of the gospel, wouldst thou please, as we go through this book, see the gospel shining so clearly in the beauty of Christ and all that he's accomplished in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into glory. He's done it all to save his people. He's not dead in vain. Now seal these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go in the name of the Lord.